0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest, I'm David Tate, and this is part 31 in our series going through the Gospel of Matthew. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you that I just launched a new YouTube channel where I'm going to be posting a lot of the videos that used to would have been posted on my main channel, now let's be honest. So if you're wanting some more laid-back, long-form, informal content, such as the Bible studies that I lead at my house, or the discipleship groups that I lead, or the sermons that I preach at my church, you can find those at the new YouTube channel, which is simply called David Tate. However, for the stuff that you're currently listening to, that should all still be found on my main channel, and so if that's all you're here for, that is A-OK. Let's get back to the thing that you're actually here for. Today, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week as we continue our way through Matthew chapter 10, which is our second big discourse section in the whole gospel of Matthew, the first discourse section being Matthew chapters 5 through 7, which we typically call the Sermon on the Mount. Since the Sermon on the Mount ended, we've had two chapters of narrative, right? Chapters 8 and 9 were primarily focused on telling us more about Jesus' ministry, and we get to see him grow in popularity as we get to see basically 10 different miracle stories which are separated into three cycles of three miracles each, the last cycle containing four miracles, right? And throughout these miracle stories, we've all ha- we've also had interspersed within there calls to discipleship. And that whole section ended at the end of Matthew chapter 9, With Jesus looking out at these people who had gathered to him, right? The flocks of the people of Israel. And he sees that they are like sheep without a shepherd. And he remarks that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few and there needs to be people to go and work the harvest. Well, last week in Matthew chapter 10 verses 1 through 15, we talked about how Jesus went about beginning to solve that problem, right? If the people are sheep without a shepherd, he is going to be their shepherd and he is going to appoint sub-shepherds to go out and take care of the flock, right? If the harvest is plentiful, he is going to employ workers to go out and reap the harvest, And so what we saw in verses 1 through 15 is that Jesus appoints 12 of his disciples to be what he calls apostles, right? So Jesus at this point, he's got a lot of disciples, but he sets aside 12 of them in particular to be his apostles. And the word apostle means to go and be sent out, right? But it's not just that they're being sent out because technically every disciple is sent out to go and preach the gospel. These apostles are sent out with the very authority of Jesus himself, and Jesus demonstrates this by giving them the power to go out and perform miracles in the same way that he performs miracles, right? They are given power over sickness, power over death, power over the devil himself, and given the ability to go out and cast out demons and all that stuff, right? And so the things that we've seen Jesus doing— the apostles are sent to go do. And what we saw in verses 1 through 15 is that Jesus sent them out in particular to the people of Israel and not to the Gentiles, right? Gentiles are non-Jewish people. That's going to come at the very end of the gospel, right? And so as we go through just the gospel of Matthew here, what we see is that the apostles are specifically being told to direct their attention to the people of Israel, and it's only because of the people of Israel's rejection of their Messiah that we're then going to see it expanded, which is actually something that was prophesied way back in the Old Testament and all that stuff, but we don't need to get into that right now. The main thing I need you to know is that the whole context of Matthew chapter 10 and this discourse right here is Jesus giving his apostles their mission, right? And so verses 1 through 15 is where he really just lays down the groundworks And then right here, starting in verse 16, he's going to begin to give them a warning, which is really going to carry us through to the end of the chapter. So we have these few verses at the very beginning where he lays down the rules, and then the rest of the chapter is honestly very negative (laughs) Uh, because what we're going to see is that these people are going to face a whole lot of hardship as they go about their mission. And I think that the best way to set this up is we're going to actually just hop right in and start reading it in just a second. But before I read the text, I want you to try to picture this from the perspective of the apostles themselves, right? Imagine that you are one of the apostles standing there in front of Jesus, um, kind of like the author of this gospel, Matthew himself was, right? If the tradition is true and the apostle Matthew is the one who penned the gospel of Matthew, then Matthew was one of these 12 apostles who was standing there receiving these instructions from Jesus. Let's imagine this from Matthew's perspective or from one of the other apostles' perspectives. Jesus has just chosen them to be his ambassadors, right? These are people who have come to believe not only that Jesus is a rabbi, but that Jesus is the Messiah himself, and they're beginning to think that maybe he's more than just a Messiah, right? That he might be something more than just a man, right? Because we have that whole miracle where he calmed the storm, and they're saying, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And he starts going around saying that he can forgive sins and stuff like that, right? So these people have a very high opinion of who Jesus is, right? And now this person who they believe to be a very wise teacher and who they believe to be the Messiah and who they believe to be more than a man, this miracle worker has called them to be his ambassadors, right? They are going to be the 12 people going out to spread the news of this new kingdom, right? Just like Moses sent 12 spies into the promised land to prepare the way for the people to go in. And just like the 12 tribes went in and conquered the new land, so Jesus, the new Joshua, is sending these 12 out into the land of Israel to plant a new Israel and to promise his new kingdom, right? That's what these guys are. These 12 apostles have been called to the most exciting thing ever, right? You go back to the Old Testament and it says, blessed are the feet of those who carry the good news. That's who these apostles are. They are the ones carrying the good news. They have been called to the most amazing task ever. They're probably really excited about this. And so as you hear it from their perspective, you can imagine that they are getting so excited, right? They have been hand-selected by the Father and by Jesus to go out and preach the gospel that has been foretold by, for hundreds of years, right? That's really exciting news. And not only have they been hand-chosen for this task, but they have given the, they've been given the power and the authority to do things to authenticate their message. These are people who have just been told that they are going to have the power over sickness the power over death, the power over the devil himself, they're probably hearing this and they are thinking that they are going to be unstoppable, right? It's almost like those first 15 verses that we talked about last week could be viewed almost like as a rallying cry that you see in one of the most epic action movies. Think like Mel Gibson and Braveheart, right? That's kind of what it feels like when Jesus is talking to these apostles, right? These are people who are going to go out into the world with this unmatched, unparalleled power, And they're going to go out and proclaim the eternal kingdom of God to all with ears to hear. That probably sounds really, really good from their perspective. And if you think of it from that perspective, they are probably getting so excited and they're probably thinking that nothing's going to stand in their way. The reason I say that is because that's kind of how every minister feels, right? Whenever you feel called to the ministry, you don't have to be handpicked by Jesus and told that you're going to go do all this stuff, right? You have this, like, aspiration in your heart where you're like, yes, I'm going to go out and everybody is going to believe, right? The apostles, they actually felt this even more, most likely, just because Jesus is the one hyping them up. And so if you think of it from their perspective, it makes these next words that Jesus shares all the more shocking, right? So think of it from their perspective where they're probably feeling on top of the world. They have just been given this amazing task. They have just been promised all this amazing power. And then Jesus says these words. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. Then you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. All right, we'll stop there. Now, if you think of this whole thing from their perspective, that really changes how you view this, right? Because if you were to just read the first few verses, Jesus did talk about, like, you know, in the early verses of chapter 10, he did talk about how, you know, some cities might be unworthy and they might just dust off their sandals and go along. Well, that sounds good and fine, right? Yeah, some people aren't going to accept the message. That's okay. But you get to verse 16 and all of a sudden things sound a lot scarier, right? If you were to just read the first few verses of chapter 10, you would think that these people were giving unstoppable force and that they were going to just go out and just dominate the field. Then all of a sudden, Jesus starts talking about them being persecuted and not only persecuted, but physically assaulted, right? And not only physically assaulted, but dragged into courts and thrown in prison and not even that, but killed. And if you're one of the apostles here, you're probably thinking, whoa, 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 where did this come from? What happened to all that power that you promised us a few moments ago, right? You gave us power over sickness, over death, over the devil. And now you're saying we're going to be handed over to death? Jesus, what's the deal here, right? If you're thinking of it from the apostle's perspective, these words are shocking. Because right here is where Jesus really begins to clarify the nature of the mission he's sending them on. Because what Jesus is doing is he's clarifying that the power that they're being given is not a power to serve themselves, right? Yes, they are being given power to deliver people from sickness and to deliver people from death and to deliver people from the devil, but they are not being given power to deliver themselves from persecution. In fact, what Jesus is actually arguing in these verses and the verses to follow is that persecution is actually necessary in order for the mission that he is sending them on to be properly accomplished. He's saying that the mission cannot be accomplished apart from persecution. And so if you're the apostles and you're hearing this, you're probably just running your hands through your hair being like, what? What do you mean that we're going to be persecuted? This this radically changes things. I thought we were going to go out there and we we're going to be the dream team going out and just like getting everybody saved. And and people were going to believe and that the kingdom of God was going to be established immediately. But now there's going to be this pushback and you're saying that we could die. Who said anything about dying? But in fact, if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, this is exactly what Jesus promised. right? Go back to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. What does Jesus say at the very end there? Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if you go to Matthew chapter 5, this is what Jesus said in the first discourse, right? He said, guys, you are going to be persecuted because of me. And that's a blessing, and it's a good thing. Because there's apparently some whole, like, in God's divine plan, and in his pre-purpose plan that has existed since the beginning of the ages, God has pre-purposed it that his people would suffer. And it's not because he hates his people, but it's because that suffering serves a purpose. And Jesus is going to begin to explain what that purpose is as we go through these verses. And uh, what I really want to do in this whole thing is I want to really focus on the earlier verses more because if you can understand the earlier verses, the rest of it will kind of just flow more naturally for you. And so I can trust that y'all can go into that a little bit more deeply on your own. And so what he says is this, Behold, I send you out. As sheep in the midst of wolves. I, I've tried to highlight this a lot. I like whenever Matthew uses the word behold. Right? This is a very Hebraic way of telling stories or recounting things. Um, Jewish people, whenever they're telling stories and stuff, uh, and you read this a lot in the Old Testament, right? Um, if they're trying to get your attention and they're trying to get you to see things from the perspective of the character in the story, they'll say, behold. Right? Hine. Right? Hineni. Right? This is, this is how they'll tell stories. And Jesus gets their attention. Right? He's been telling them all this stuff about what they're going to go do, what their mission is, who they're supposed to go to, the power they're going to have. He's been saying all that. But then he sobers them up and says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. I'll remind you about something I already mentioned uh, just a few moments ago. This whole conversation in Matthew chapter 10 started because of something that Jesus noticed in Matthew chapter 9. Right, He noticed that the people of Israel... We're like sheep without a shepherd, right? And this is ultimately a call back to the book of Numbers and to the book of Ezekiel. Uh, the book of Numbers specifically, um, Moses, before he died, he asked God to appoint a new leader over the people of Israel so that once he died, the people would not be sheep without a shepherd, right? And so God appoints Joshua to follow Moses. Well, in the same way, Jesus knows that he is going to leave and he realizes that the people are going to be like sheep, like the people are already sheep without a shepherd. Because there's all these religious leaders, but none of them are guiding them in truth. And so Jesus realizes that before he leaves, he needs to appoint new shepherds, right? And so Jesus is the shepherd for the people, but he is appointing the apostles as shepherds over the people as well. But interestingly, the apostles are not only shepherds. What he says here is that the apostles themselves are sheep, right? This is like amazing grace theology. I once was lost, but now I'm found right? The apostles were sheep without a shepherd, but Jesus has become their shepherd. And so now Jesus is appointing the sheep to become shepherds themselves. And the sheep that have been found by Jesus are now going to be shepherds unto the sheep who are still lost. But they're still sheep. And so Jesus says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So the apostles themselves are shepherds, but they're also sheep And Jesus is sending them out into an Israel that is full of wolves and full of predators who are going to view them as prey and who want nothing more than to devour the sheep. Right? He is going to send them out. And whenever he's talking about wolves here, he probably chiefly has in mind the religious leaders who are leading the people astray. Right? Because if you go back to Matthew chapter 7, once again, the Sermon on the Mount, this is what he talks about whenever he's talking about false prophets and false teachers. Right? He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Right? So just a few chapters earlier, Jesus used the same imagery. And he said that there are religious leaders out there, right? False prophets, false teachers. They're going to go around acting like they're sheep, but really they're ravenous wolves. And so he tells his disciples to be aware of those people and to beware them, right? Stay away from those guys. Well, now Jesus is telling his apostles that in order to fulfill their mission, they're going to have to go into the midst of that territory, right? They have to beware them. But they have to encounter them, right? It's not enough for Christians to just go away and be monks out in the wilderness. No, they have to live in a world where there are going to be wolves and they are going to be sheep, right? Yes, they might have been delivered and they might be shepherds of other sheep, but they're still sheep nonetheless. And so there are going to be wolves out there who want to devour them in the same way that they want to devour all the other sheep. And so Jesus warns them that this is going to be the reality. And as you read through this, he's going to talk about how the Jewish leaders are going to bring them into the synagogues, right? And they're going to afflict them there. And whenever that doesn't work, and whenever the Christians don't buckle at that pressure, they're going to take them out of the synagogues, and they're going to hand them over to the Gentiles. First off, we're actually going to see this happen to Jesus himself in this gospel. Right. So by the end of this gospel, the Jews are going to take Jesus and they're going to afflict him in their synagogues. And then whenever that doesn't work, they're going to put him on trial. And whenever that doesn't work, they're going to hand him over to the Romans. And then Jesus is going to be killed by the Gentiles. Right. Because of the hand of the Jews. Right. So Jesus crucifixion. And Jesus is going to talk about this in a few verses as well. Once we get on to verses 24 and onwards, Jesus's whole passion story. Right. The story of his sufferings. Right. The death and resurrection of Jesus and stuff that also is going to be a foretaste of what these guys are going to go through, right? They're going to face opposition by the Jewish people, and from that opposition by the Jewish people, they're going to be handed over to the the Gentile leaders and stuff as well, right? So that's really what Jesus is getting at here, and this is what he's sending them into, right? Jesus is not—he's telling them to not be surprised when they face persecution, right? Because whenever Jesus is sending them on the mission, he expects them to suffer. Notice that. Right Jesus loves these people yet he is sending them out on a mission where he fully expects them to suffer and even to die Many people are uncomfortable with that sort of theology but that is what is being communicated here right Jesus is not giving them like okay every, like he's giving them all this power but all the power he is giving them is not a power that makes their life cozy and comfortable and nice and clean he is giving them this power to authenticate His message and to give Him glory so they can go out and suffer and He fully expects them to suffer for His sake. If, you, if, that the, if that like shakes up your theology about God, then you need to come to terms with that because that is going to shape the rest of the New Testament's theology about God as well. right? God has no problem sending His people out to suffer and that doesn't mean He doesn't love them. right? He does love them, but the suffering serves a purpose. And so... Uh, What we're going to see is that just as the wolves have devoured the sheep of Israel, right? Um, So just as the false prophets and the false teachers and just as the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those guys, just as they have devoured the sheep of Israel, so too the apostles are called to join the sheep in their suffering, right? So they are shepherds, but you lead by example, right? And so just as they are shepherds guiding the sheep, well, they are themselves sheep. And so if the people of Israel are suffering under the hand of these false prophets and under these wolves, well, the Christians and the apostles specifically here, they're not called to live differently, right? No, they are called to identify with the sheep and they are called to be oppressed with the sheep, very much kind of like David whenever he was on the run from King Saul, right? David was rejected by King Saul. He went on the run. He became lowly and outcast and downtrodden and afflicted. And as a result of his faithfulness to God amidst his suffering, what ended up happening? All the, downla- all the downtrodden and lowly and afflicted flocked to David. And he began to basically forge a pocket Israel within Israel, even whenever King Saul was still king. That's kind of what the apostles are being called to do here as well, right? They are called to suffer with the fellow sheep so that their suffering will be a testimony to the sheep of the genuineness of their faith, and their suffering will condemn the wolves and identify the wolves for who they are, right? That's the purpose of this whole suffering thing. And so, whenever you um, really just read through the rest of this gospel and go into the book of Acts, this is the mindset you're going to have, right? Suffering serves a purpose. The suffering serves a purpose of highlighting the genuineness of the faith of the people suffering, but it also serves to highlight the hypocrisy of the leaders who are afflicting the suffering. And this suffering is going to be used to draw the other lost sheep into the fold, right? Because the lost sheep who are genuinely seeking the kingdom, they're going to see the apostles in their suffering. And rather than that turning them away, it's going to draw them near. There are some people who are going to see the suffering and they're going to turn away, but that's because they love the things of the world more than the things of God. And if that's the case, then God's not going to force them to come into his kingdom, right? That's the beauty of this whole thing, right? By seeing the apostles in their suffering, It is testing people to see whether or not they really want to take part in the kingdom of God or whether or not they just want God because of the things that he has to offer, right? And so that's really the beauty of this whole suffering thing. And if you understand that, you'll understand the rest of this passage. That's why I'm lingering so much on these first few verses here. So he says, behold, I send you out as a sheep, as sheep in the midst of wolves, right? So that is what he's sending them out into. He knows he is sending them out to go and suffer. And so he tells them how they're supposed to conduct themselves amidst their sufferings. He says, what you need to do is you need to be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. So there's two sides to this. And just to explain the shrewdest serpents thing, um, I I could spend a long time talking about this because I think it's really cool. Some translations will say crafty. And this is definitely uh, an allusion back to Genesis chapter three, which might shock some people. Because if you go back to Genesis chapter three, uh, it says now the serpent was the shrewdest or the craftiest of all the creatures that God had created in the garden. And if you know anything about the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, when it's talking about the serpent, it is talking about the devil. And so now Jesus is ironically telling the disciples to be devil-like? Well, that's not quite what he's getting at, but this is definitely an allusion back to that story. And I could spend a long time talking about this, but instead I'm going to quote somebody much smarter than myself, somebody who I've quoted almost weekly um, during this whole um, series. And I want to share with you what Peter Lightheart says about this phrase, because I think that he just hits the nail on the head. This is what he says in regards to being shrewd as serpents. Starting with the quote. Is Jesus encouraging his disciples to use deception to protect themselves? In part, the answer is yes. Deception is a tactic of war, and the apostles were at war. When the disciples leave a town where they've been persecuted, they don't leave a forwarding address. They slip out and go somewhere else. Sometimes they might even wear a disguise. Behind these tactics of deception is an eye-for-eye justice. The serpent deceived Eve, and as a result, Adam and Eve were cast from the garden. It's just that Satan, the deceived, uh, sorry, it's just that Satan, the deceiver, be deceived. We deceive Satan and satanic oppressors as a strategy of protection, but also as an act of justice um, and retribution against Satan. Furthermore, he adds this, reptiles are shrewd in their ability to slip into places designed to keep them out. This is the wisdom of Jesus's serpentine disciples. Persecutors lay hands on believers, drag them before kings and governors, and magically, Christians have slipped into kings' palaces, ready to speak a word inspired by the Spirit. Through persecution, the mission to Israel will become a mission to the Gentiles. Without persecution, Jesus' disciples would never gain access to Gentile rulers. right? And so there's really two components here, and that's the end of the quote. There's really two components here that Lightheart's trying to highlight, and I think both of them are fantastic points. Right, So yes, Jesus is drawing a comparison, first and foremost, to the disciples and the serpent. But he's not saying that they should be devil-like in the sense of they should pursue the ways of the devil. He's pointing out that they should take the tactics of the devil and they should fight fire with fire, right? This is eye for eye justice. If the devil is going to use deception to bring about evil, well then they should use deception to bring about good. Not because they're trying to fight for their own personal gain or anything, but in order to advance the gospel. However, you don't want, I don't want you to take this in the sense of they should use deception in order to just protect themselves, in order to serve themselves. Well, no, Jesus makes it very clear in this whole passage that they need to be willing to suffer, right? So it's not that they should just like, you know, like like the deceptiveness, I'm trying to figure out how to word this because I want to be careful with it. The deceptiveness that they go about here needs to be a deceptiveness that does not lead them into disobedience to God right? So, if it comes down to, like, denying the faith, no, they should not be deceptive and say, oh, yeah, I'm not really a Christian. Well, no, because at that point, they're denying God, right? But they are allowed to use shrewd and crafty tactics in order to evade persecution, in order to move on and minister somewhere else, right? So, This like basically the idea is that yes, they should be willing to go through persecution and they will go through persecution, but it's not like they should like, you know, just be like, hey guys, I'm over here. I'm a Christian. You should persecute me. That's not the mentality. Like it's not that they should be seeking out persecution. It's that when persecution catches up with them, they should be willing to go through with it. Right, So that's the point Jesus is making there, but they do need to be shrewd, right? and so whenever you look at the Bible, you'll see that the apostles are doing this. Uh, you, the apostle Paul, right? whenever he's in Damascus, people are trying to hunt him down, <clears throat> and the apostle Paul could have just been like, hey guys, I'm right here, time to kill me. That's not what Paul does though, right? Uh, whenever you actually read the story, he's still at the beginning of his ministry, and so what he does is he hides in a basket, and they lower him down through the wall, and he escapes, and he goes to minister somewhere else right? And so that's not him sinning, right? It's not that he's fleeing persecution um, because he's afraid of it. No, it's because he's going off to minister somewhere else and he is being cunning and shrewd. That's what Jesus is getting at here, right? You're not being shrewd because you're afraid. You're being shrewd because you're motivated by the gospel. So that's one aspect of what it means to be shrewd as a serpent, right? You have to be crafty. You've got to fight their game. If the devil's going to be crafty, then we need to be crafty back. Right, If he's going to deceive people into evil, well, then we need to be willing to be deceptive in order to accomplish good. We don't want to deceive people into good, though. We want to preach the truth in order to bring them into good. That's why I'm kind of nuancing that, because I don't want you to misunderstand my point. I don't even know if I've nuanced it well enough, but I'm going to trust that you see where I'm heading with that. Another thing that Lightheart pointed out there uh, is that serpents are really good at getting into places that you naturally just can't get into right? And so, through their suffering, right, by being sheeps in the midst of wolves, ironically, the like the Christians are going to gain access to places they would have never had access to before, right? If you are a free man, you are not going to have access to a Gentile uh, politician's courts. But as a prisoner, you can. Paul's, once again, Paul's a shining example of everything that Jesus is saying to the apostles here, right? Because the apostle Paul, this is how he views his ministry, right? Whenever he is standing before, like, uh, like at the uh, at the end of the book of Acts, right? Whenever he's standing before the governors in Caesarea and stuff like that, he's preaching to them and he would have never had access to them other than this. And they're like, what do you want to convert us too? And he's like, Hey, I mean, I wouldn't be upset about it. And whenever he's writing Philippians, he's telling the Philippian church, Hey guys, I am in prison, but Caesar's bodyguards are being converted. And there are members of Caesar's household who have come to the faith. And he's saying, yeah, I'm in prison, but I'm doing great because I have access to people I would never have had access to if it weren't for my persecution. Right. And so through being sheep in the midst of wolves, they will be delivered into places where they can um minister further. So they're going to be shrewd as serpents, but they also need to be innocent as doves. Right. And the innocent as doves phrase there, that really kind of serves to reinforce, that serves to nuance the things that I was trying to highlight before. Right? So their shrewdness and their craftiness should not violate their innocence. right? So they shouldn't be so deceptive and shrewd and cunning and crafty that it guides them into disobedience towards God to where they actually have a guilty conscience over their unwillingness to suffer. That should not be their motivation to be crafty. Their craftiness should be something where it's like they're they're just, they're thinking on their feet, right? They're tactical about this, right? They're not seeking out persecution and they're avoiding it if they can, but they're not avoiding it because they're afraid. They're avoiding it because they're motivated to share the gospel more and they don't want the gospel gospel to be hindered, right? So they need to be innocent as doves. And this is really a difficult thing to do, right? It's, it's easy to be shrewd as a serpent and it's difficult to be innocent as a dove as it is, but Jesus is calling them to be both. And they have to do both of these, not just in a context of peace, but in a context of being hunted down by wolves. Right? So if you understand verse 16, you'll understand the rest of the passage we're going through today. That's why I spent so much time on this. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpent, innocent as doves. This is where he's sending them. Sheep in the midst of wolves. They have to be shrewd as serpents on one end, innocent as doves on the other. They need to be cunning and tactical, and they need to think through things. But on the other hand, they need to be innocent, and they need to make sure that they are living rightly before God, and they need to be pure and undefiled. But beware of men. For they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. Jesus is telling them right up front what they're going to have to deal with, right? People are going to take them. They're going to take them into the courts. And not only into the courts, but they are going to flog you in their synagogues. The idea is that even the Jewish people are going to reject you, right? Not all Israel belongs to Israel, as the Apostle Paul will say, right? Not all Israel belongs to Israel. And so they will go to the synagogues and they will be flogged there. Right, This is kind of crazy if you think about this from um, a first century Jewish perspective, because if you're being flogged in the synagogue, this isn't just like being reprimanded, right? You are being excommunicated from society, right? If you're being flogged in the synagogue, this means that your reputation now is as somebody who is opposed to the societal norm. And you're going to be kicked out of the synagogue, right? And that reputation is going to spread. Your family is going to hear about this, right? And it's going to affect how everybody views you how everybody views your family it's going to affect your reputation it's going to affect how you can interact with people this is some crazy stuff and if you're the disciples hearing this the apostles you're shocked and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake right so you still do have this idea that there is going to be success through persecution because you see that it's advancing right courts synagogues governors kings so where they're being brought before is expanding because they're going to be successful but the success comes through their willingness to suffer. And notice why they're going to be doing this. They're going to be going before them as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. So they are ministering to the people of Israel, but through their ministry to the people of Israel and through the rejection by the hands of Israel, they're going to be delivered over to the Gentiles, and through their ministry to Israel, they're going to end up testifying to the Gentiles anyways. The beauty of this, right? So this this is one of the most profound things that you're going to notice if you read throughout the entire Bible. Um, this is what the Apostle Paul likes to call the mystery of the gospel, is the fact that God was primarily focused on Israel throughout the whole Scriptures, but He always had an eye on the Gentiles, right? And everything He was doing through Israel was in order to bring the Gentiles to Him, right? That's what Jesus is communicating right here. Their mission is to Israel, but through their ministry to Israel naturally their ministry is going to expand to the Gentiles because as they're being brought before these people, the Gentiles are hearing the gospel too. But when they deliver you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. So Jesus comforts the apostles by telling them, guys, I don't want you to be anxious about this. I don't want you to be stressed. You'll notice that a lot of the teachings that he says in Matthew chapter 10 call back to the Sermon on the Mount. Right? There's no need to be anxious about this stuff, right? Your heavenly Father sees you, He's going to take care of you. I don't want you to freak out about this. I don't want you to think that you need to deliver the perfect sermon. The Spirit will take care of it. Your job needs to simply be to endure, to persist, to persevere, right? Your job is to not back down. And if you can find yourself in that position where you are standing on court, the Spirit of God will provide you with the words that you need, right? Your focus needs to be to be faithful. If you're focusing too much on the words, you're going to end up cracking somewhere along the way. Your job is to be faithful and to be sheep of sheep the midst of wolves, shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves. That's what he's communicating. But then notice that it advances even more. Not only will their fellow Jewish countrymen turn against them, but their own families will turn against them. And brother will betray brother to death. And a father his child. A father his child, guys. That's That's bad. <laughs> And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You'll have to understand, once again, the context here, right? Jewish society was a fam- familial society, right? And so what he is saying is that as you're going about serving me, you're going to have to choose who you want to serve, me or your family. Because as you're being persecuted, inherently, like I already kind of talked about this, it's not just going to affect your reputation. It is going to affect your family's reputation too. Um, This is vastly different than our current culture, right? Uh, Nowadays, over here in America, uh, if we have people, like, if we have people in our family who have different religious views, we just try to avoid talking about religion at the dinner table during holidays. That's not how it worked in Israel, right? In Israel, your religious views established everything, right? And you could not function as an Israelite in any societal normal standard if you were excommunicated from the synagogue, Right. This was it was the fabric of life, of daily life. Right. And so if you were being rejected by all these people, that would not only affect you, it would affect the rest of your family and it would force your family to also make a choice. So by choosing to follow Jesus as an Israelite. Right. And as a Jewish person choosing to deny yourself and be a follower of Jesus, by doing that, you are not only forcing yourself to make a decision, you're forcing your family to make a decision, too. Because now everybody's going to be asking them, what do you think about your son, your daughter, your brother, your sister? What do you think about them for following Jesus of Nazareth? And now that family has to decide whether or not they're going to support you and take your side, in which case they will be rejected by everybody else, or they've got to decide whether they're going to disown you and hand you over to the synagogue leaders as well and to the Gentiles. And Jesus says, guys, I'm not going to lie to you. A lot of your family members will betray you. You might think that they love you, but the reason they love you is because you align with them. And the moment they see that you have chosen me over them, they're gonna hand you over to death. Brother will betray brother. A father, his child. Children rise up against parents, right? You have this whole inversion of the familial like bond, right? You got siblings turning against one another. You got parents against children. Children against parents. This is terrible. They're gonna rise up and cause them to be put to death right? Families are all about producing life in one another, yet because of them following Jesus, death is going to follow. And you will be hated by all, right? By your society, by your family, you're going to be hated by all of them because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Once again, do you see the emphasis here, right? It's about enduring. It's about persevering, right? His whole thing here is he's saying, don't be anxious, don't be afraid. And I imagine that he need they need to hear this. Because if you're seeing it from their perspective, they would be terrified, right? The first few verses of this chapter, they were on the highest of highs. They're thinking, wow, this is going to be an amazing mission. I'm so glad I decided to follow Jesus. And then in starting in verse 16, he just takes the sharp turn and says, guys, you're going to be killed for this. And it's going to be your family that does it. But throughout all this, he's saying, it's not you who speaks. The spirit speaks through you. You're going to be hated by all. But if you endure to the end, you'll be saved. The thing that he's communicating to them is that it's about endurance. It's about being faithful and pushing through. He says, don't be anxious about your words. Don't be anxious about your family. Don't be anxious about your reputation and stuff like that. Just be anxious about being faithful. And if you're being anxious about being faithful, you're not going to be anxious at all. Because you're going to be focused on being faithful. And it's going to lead you to trust. And because you trust in God, you're not going to be anxious. So he says, I don't want you to be anxious about any of this stuff. The Spirit will provide. If you endure, you'll be good. Don't worry about all those other stuff. If you push through, I can guarantee you it's going to be worth it. And then he says, but whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. I'm going to be entirely honest with you. This is probably one of, if not the single most difficult verse in the entire Gospel of Matthew. And I wish that I could tell you that I know the exact correct interpretation, but I am I'm gonna give you some different theories that people have said, and then I'll give you kind of my own like educated guess, but I do not know fully, and so I would just encourage you to go look at this verse on your own and try to figure out um what he fully means here. Um so what Jesus says is okay, the first off, the first part's easy, right? When they persecute you in the city, flee to the next, right? So he's saying, Don't beat a dead horse. Don't try too hard on these people and don't be like, you know what? They rejected me once. I'm going to keep on going. He says, no, just move on. Right. Just the same thing that he said back in the earlier section of chapter 10, you know, just kick the dust off your sandal and move along. Right. That's what he's saying there. The hard part is he says, for truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the son of man comes. Well, the phrase, the son of man comes, that's a bit tricky because we would think that that's talking about the son of man returning to establish his kingdom. Okay, well, the issue with that is that, I mean, the apostles are all dead now, and Jesus still hasn't returned 2,000 years later. So if we're talking about Jesus returning in the end, well, then we've got to figure out what Jesus means here, because, like, I mean, once again, the apostles are dead, and he still hasn't come back. And so is this a false prophecy that Jesus makes? Well, obviously, I do not believe that, because I believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. And the thing is... Matthew himself was writing this at a time period when Jesus was gone. And I mean, I don't know how old Matthew was. Maybe Matthew thought Jesus was coming back in his lifetime. You could argue that. But I would argue that that's probably not what Matthew thinks here either. Right. Uh, One thing that people will suggest, and I'm going to be entirely honest, I find this to be a pretty weak argument. People will say that whenever Jesus says, until the Son of Man comes, they're actually talking about whenever Jesus comes in judgment on um, Jerusalem in AD 70, whenever the Romans destroy the city. I guess that's possible. I just think that that's a bit of a stretch here because I don't really see the phrase being used in that way anywhere else in the Gospels, right? And to be fair, uh, depending on your eschatological perspective, your end times perspectives and stuff like that, um, some people might just associate that with the return of Jesus. I don't land there, right? Uh, I guess if you did land there, it would make more sense of what he means right here because the apostles, a lot of them were still alive whenever, um, you know, Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. But to me, that just doesn't really line up that well either. And so there's really, honestly, if you go look it up, there are like 30 bajillion theories about how to interpret this verse uh, in order to reconcile it. But to me, I would actually argue that I think that, just from my own perspective, I think Jesus is saying something a little bit different. And honestly, I couldn't really find this like interpretation many other places. And so take this with a grain of salt. But the way that I would read this most naturally to me is that, what Jesus is really um, telling them, and what I'm going to do is going to paraphrase him here, is I think what he's really trying to say to them is that there will always be more work to be done, right? I think that's really what he's communicating to them. Basically, because because this is all in the context of suffering, right? And he just told them, whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. And I think that by telling them to flee to the next city... The question that they might ask in response to this is like, well, Jesus, if we just flee to the next city, we'll run out of work, right? Because what if every city rejects us? Are we going to run out of work? And I think what he's telling them is that there's always going to be more work to be done, right? So if they think that the time of suffering has come to an end because they've been rejected by all the cities or because all the cities have accepted them, and they're like, okay, well, the time of suffering has come to an end. It's time to sit back on a beach. It's time to relax. It's time to drink some pina coladas and just wait until the return of the Son of Man. I think that what Jesus is telling them is that they've misunderstood the mission, right? I think what he's really trying to communicate to them is that the nature of the mission he is currently giving them is a mission that is going to take them so long that it will not be completed until he comes back, right? There's also the added confusion of the fact that at this point in the story, I don't think that they're aware that he's going to leave. And the reason I say that is because if you go to the book of Acts chapter 1, literally moments before his ascension, they are still confused about the fact that Jesus is leaving. Right? And so I think that the phrase is, um, it's, what's the word I'm going for? Um, not, not subtle enough, it's. Ambiguous, yeah. Um, The the phrase is ambiguous enough to where I think it is supposed to be hard to define, to where I think think that Jesus is being intentionally vague here. But I think what he's ultimately communicating is that this mission he's sending them on is not going to be an easy mission to complete, right? They're going to go on this mission to the people of Israel, and yes, they're going to be rejected, but because of the rejection they're going to face, it's going to be a mission that takes them so long that it will be one that will keep going on into into perpetuity, until Jesus comes back, right? In which case, I think that you might be able to reconcile that with how it's still going on to this day. Because what we're going to see in the book of Acts is that eventually, through their ministry to Israel, the apostles are going to be rejected, which then leads them to the Gentiles. But even whenever they're ministering to the Gentiles, they still have their eyes looking back at Israel. Like if you go to Romans chapters 9 through 11, this is what the apostle Paul says. He is an apostle to the Gentiles for the sake of the Jews. Right, and so he is ministering to the Jewish uh, to the Gentile people, but he's doing it in order to provoke the Jewish people to jealousy. Right, this is a Deuteronomy 32 worldview where God says he's going to take the gospel to the Gentiles in order to provoke the Jewish people to jealousy, and so even to this day, the mission to Israel is still ongoing because Israel has not yet been saved. Right, and so what was going on with the apostles right here, starting in chapter ten? is a mission that is still ongoing, even to this day, and it will not be fulfilled until the Lamb of God stands on the Mount of Olives with 144,000 Jews standing behind him that we read about in Revelation, right? And so that's when the mission to the people of Israel will be completed, and even in this, like, intermediate ministry to the Gentiles, that's still part of the overall mission, right? And so I, like, from my perspective, it seemed like verse 23 is really him just saying, If you think that you're going to run out of work, trust me. I know that Israel is a small place. It's going to take a while to finish this mission, whether it's going to be 10 years, 20 years, or 2000 years, right? I think that's kind of what Jesus is getting at. But once again, that's just kind of me just giving you my own interpretation. I really couldn't find a lot of people landing there, but I wanted to throw that out there and y'all can kind of just look into that a little bit more on your own. Um, Fortunately for us, the rest of this passage is a lot easier to interpret. This is what Jesus says. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? All right. Uh, So uh, what Jesus tells them here is something we've already kind of talked about, is that the disciples shouldn't think that they're going to receive any better reception than their teacher, right? This is really the whole issue that Timothy is facing in 2 Timothy, right? Paul writes to him And Paul says, hey, Timothy, you're going to need to endure through suffering and you need to be prepared to suffer and you need to do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry, even though it's looking really bad. And if you know the context of 2 Timothy, you'll realize that Paul is in prison and he's about to die. And so for Timothy, who is a disciple of Paul, he's thinking, well, crud, if Paul is in prison and about to die, what are they going to do to me? And that's because Timothy knows that a disciple is not above his teacher, right? And if Paul taught Timothy everything he knows and Paul ended up in prison, well, it's very likely that Timothy will end up in prison as well. That's what Jesus is telling the apostles here, right? A disciples not above his teacher nor a slave above his master, right? If they treated me with contempt, they're going to treat you with contempt as well. There is a foreboding element to these verses because at this point in the gospel, I just want you to notice that Jesus' persecution has overall been pretty mild, right? We've seen a little bit of pushback in chapters 8 and 9, but overall we haven't seen a whole lot of pushback yet in the story. So I think what Matthew's ultimately getting at here, uh, and I think the reason he shares this right here is first off, chronologically speaking, this is where it fits, but also I think that Matthew shares it at this point so that as we read forward throughout the rest of the gospel, every hardship that Jesus endures is meant to serve as a foretaste for what the apostles can also endure, right? So Jesus tells us that the disciples and the apostles are going to face the same sort of hardship before he's faced this hardship. So that as we read through the rest of the gospel, and we see Jesus facing this and that and this and that, not only do we get to see the Son of God enduring it, but we get to realize that the disciples who are going with Jesus through this are realizing that they're going to have to go through that same thing. So that whenever Jesus is carrying his cross to Calvary and he dies there, the apostles are realizing we're going to have to do the same thing. right? Whenever he is being Flogged, whenever he has the crown of thorns put on his head, whenever all these things are happening to him, whenever he's being kicked out of his hometown, all those things are things that the apostles are processing, realizing this could be a reality for us as well. Whenever his brothers reject him and they kick him out, all that stuff, the apostles are reading that and realizing the disciple's not above his teacher, nor the slave is master. It's enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master, right? The whole goal of a disciple is to be like the teacher. And so, you can't want the good things that the teacher receives and not the bad things as well. Yes, you will get the power and the wisdom, but you'll also get the persecution and the suffering. Right? It's a whole, like, you have to get all of it. You can't just get some of it. Right? The whole goal of a disciple is to mimic and become like your teacher and your rabbi. So, he says, that's what's going to happen. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household. Right? If they think that I am Beelzebul, well, they're going to think that all of you are descendants of Beelzebul. But the way that Jesus frames this whole thing is not that persecution is a bad thing, right? So yes, it is bad that these people are responding this way, but Jesus, at no point does he suggest that they should avoid persecution or that persecution itself is bad. He just says persecution is to be expected. And in fact, it seems like, by the way he's talking about it, that it is necessary. Because ultimately what persecution is, is it's an opportunity to witness in in different ways, right? And through this witness... They are demonstrating that this suffering is essential in order to accomplish the mission because they're following in the footsteps of their shepherd, right? That's what a shepherd does. A shepherd guides the sheep. And so if the shepherd goes through suffering, guess what the sheep have to do? They have to follow through the suffering as well. If the shepherd goes through the valley of the shadow of death, well, that's where the sheep have to go as well, right? There might be other sheep who are lost who decide not to go through that valley. But if you're wanting to follow the shepherd, you better go through that valley too, right? And so if the teacher suffers, then the disciples should suffer as well. Therefore do not fear them, he says, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in darkness speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for an Assarian, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear You are more valuable than many sparrows. You'll notice that, once again, verses 26 to 31 are callbacks to the Sermon on the Mount, right? And it's the same passage. Do not be anxious. If you haven't noticed, almost this entire chapter here or this entire section here has really been repeating the same teachings we have in that do not be anxious teaching in Matthew chapter 6, right? It's don't be anxious, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. Trust your Father. Trust your Heavenly Father. He will provide. He will provide. That's really what Jesus is getting at here and what Matthew is trying to get at as well. So he says, do not fear them, which is a weird thing to say, right? It says, therefore, do not fear them. Therefore? What are you talking about? Therefore, Jesus, (laughs) you just said that they're going to kill us. You said that they're going to afflict us like they afflict you. They said that our, (laughs) you said that our families are going to leave us. Why? How can you say, therefore, do not fear them? Jesus, it sounds like we should fear them, but Jesus is going to explain why. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. So he says, don't worry, guys, if you endure through the end, Your innocence will be made known, right? In the end on judgment day, guess what? You're going to stand before God and he will know that you were shrewd as a serpent and innocent as a dove. And they will be displayed for the ravenous wolves that they are. And so you don't have to fear them. What you need to do is you need to fear God. That's what he's getting at. So he says, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops, right? Jesus is discipling them. He is teaching them private things, but whenever he leaves, now they're, the floodgates are open. They're supposed to go out there and they're supposed to preach at the top of their lungs. And I got a little hypothetical scenario of this for you uh, just to show you how this actually played out. A young tax collector will be sitting at his booth whenever he hears Jesus whispering the words, follow me. And years later, what he's going to do is he's going to pen a gospel telling Jesus' teachings regarding forsaking all worldly goods and comfort for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That's what it looks like to have Jesus whisper in your ear and then go shout it upon the housetops, right? Matthew's whole story is that verse, right? Matthew was just a tax collector at a booth and Jesus whispered, follow me, right? Matthew got up and left. And then he spent the rest of his life shouting about who Jesus was. And he wrote this entire gospel that was proclaiming the thing that he had to learn. Forsake worldly goods. You can't serve both God and money right? Trust your father. Do not be anxious. All the things that Matthew himself had to learn in order to obey Jesus' whisper, he is now proclaiming through the gospel that we're studying right now. That's what Jesus is telling them to do, right? I whispered to you, right? And and I don't think he's saying literally just whispered, right? I mean, there might be an element of secrecy to this, but I think what he's saying is what I have taught you, you need to proclaim, Right, I am just speaking to you right here. You need to make a big deal of it. Right, He is meek and mild, lowly Jesus. They need to go out and they need to make everybody hear it. Hark, the herald, the apostles sing. Right, that's what. Um, Hark, the herald, apostles sing. Right, that's what we need to see here going on here. And he says, "Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell." So here, once again, he's telling them, "Do not fear," but he gives them a reason not to fear. He says, why would you fear them when you fear God? And I know that nowadays in our culture, we don't really like talking about the fear of God. And whenever we do talk about the fear of God, we like to kind of dumb it down a little bit and make it just about like a severe respect. But I hate to break it to you. Both Hebrew and Greek have words for respect. And that's not what this word is. This is the word fear. And Jesus is, I mean, this is language of fear, right? Do you simply respect somebody who can destroy your soul and body in hell? No, you fear him. He is terrifying. He is scary. And that's a good thing, right? What Jesus is saying here is that the fear of God is a terrifying thing. Yes, amen, hallelujah, but it's also a liberating thing, right? Because if you can learn to fear God, it will make all earthly fears pale in comparison, right? Because God is so powerful, and if you can recognize his power, and you can recognize that you are protected by his power because you fear him and you're on his side— Why would you fear anything else? Because all other power is so much lesser than his, right? It's kind of like if you're a kid and you're best friends with the big guy on the playground. You don't have to be afraid of anybody else because if they mess with you, they got to deal with him, right? So you should fear God. You should tremble before him and you should be terrified of him. But you should also love him because he's so terrifying and you should draw near to him. And you should recognize that this guy can do a lot more than just kill your body. He can kill your soul and your body, and he can cast it into hell. And he can also do that to the people who afflict you. And once again, this passage is not to us, but I think that there is a principle and a correlation that we can draw from this passage and apply in our own lives. Right? And so he's talking to the apostles, but this is something that's true for all of us. Right? We should not fear those who kill the body. Right? We we shouldn't allow our fear of them to cause us to not be innocent as doves. Right? We shouldn't allow our fear of them to lead us to avoid persecution. Rather, We should fear God so much that we're not willing to break before him. And so if he tells us to be innocent, we'll be innocent. If he tells us to be shrewd, we're shrewd. If he tells us to be sheep amongst wolves, then let the wolves devour us, but let us not sin against him. That's what Jesus is communicating. He says, guys, if you're afraid of this, then you're missing the point. So ironically, he's telling them to be afraid, just not of man. And he says, if you can learn to fear God rather than man, then this mission will not scare you because yes, They can take your lives, but they can never take your freedom. (laughs) I didn't even mean for that, but it ended up coming back to Braveheart again, right? That's what he's getting at. Yes, these men can take your lives, but they cannot take from you the thing that God has given you, right? He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to get that, what he cannot lose, right? That is what he's communicating to them. So he says, don't fear man fear God because God is the greater power and if you fear God and you revere him then it's going to be easy to forsake all worldly possessions it's going to be easy to forsake all worldly comfort it's going to be easy to go and suffer and die because you have this promise of this eternal reward in the arms of a loving father that's what you need to do fear him fear him fear him because you fear God's judgment you fear no human authorities and he says are not two sparrows sold for an Assyrian? is kind of like a penny, right? It's like a it's like a tenth or a sixteenth of a denarii. And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Right? So we return to the image of sparrows, very similar to once again Matthew chapter 6, talking about do not be anxious. He says, think about how sparrows are so cheap, right? They're not even that, they're they're not even worth that much. Yet God sees every sparrow that falls to the ground. And in the same way, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Notice that the imagery is that like this sparrows the hair is going to be falling to the ground so he doesn't say that God's going to keep all the hair in the head but he says God sees every hair that falls and so when you're afflicted and every drop of blood falls from you and whenever they're ripping your beard out and that hair is falling on the ground God sees that and he loves you and that, that, that should convict you right because if you fear him then that means that he sees your every hair which means he sees your every action and therefore you need to live rightly before him But if he also sees your every action, that means he also sees every action of the people persecuting you. And so if you can learn to endure through the suffering, then you are building up this eternal reward with him while heaping up judgment for the person persecuting you. And as God says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, right? Vengeance doesn't belong to us, right? We're called to heap burning coals on people's heads, right? We're called to love our enemies. God will see to the judgment. For us, we are simply called to endure to not back down. And the only way you back down is if you fear man and if you fear for your life more than you fear God. And he says, don't do that. Fear God. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. God cares more about the hair on your head than he cares about a sparrow. And so if he sees the sparrows falling to the ground, he sees your hair falling to the ground and he sees the blood of drops falling to the ground. And whenever your life is taken from you, God sees that. But whenever you don't let your life be taken from you, God sees that as well. But if you endure and he get your life taken away, guess what? God sees that and he sees who did that to you and he will see to judgment. And so if you fear him and if you trust him, things will go well for you and you will know that you will have this eternal promise to rely upon. Therefore, these are our final verses. Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. Those are some scary verses. I'm not going to lie. There's a lot of scary verses in Matthew. And these are some of the greatest ones. Like you got that Matthew chapter seven verse, you know, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is another one, right? Or even after the Lord's prayer, right? If you forgive others, you'll be forgiven. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. (laughs) This is another one of those. If you confess me, I will confess you. If you deny me, I will deny you. The same thing, like what he's saying here is the same thing he's been saying through this whole thing. It's about enduring. It's about persevering. It's about going through and and staying faithful, right? It's not about winning every single person to Christ. Yes, that's what we want. But Jesus says that's not going to happen, right? There are going to be people who reject you. And they're not just going to say, no, I'm not interested. They're going to hear your message and they're going to throw you in prison and they're going to kill you and they're going to take your life. Your job is to not stop confessing Christ. And once again, I am talking to you. Jesus is immediately talking to the apostles. Right? And so, yes, the message is directly to them, and there are certain components of this whole mission thing that are specific to them. But there are general principles that apply to everyone. Right, That's what Jesus says. Therefore, everyone who confesses me. He doesn't say, therefore, the apostles. He says, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess before my father. The point is that we need to endure. right, And no matter what comes your way, yes, you should be as shrewd as a serpent, and you shouldn't be just chasing after persecution. But when the persecution comes, you need to be innocent as a dove. And if somebody charges you, you need to confess Christ. Because if you deny him, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. It doesn't matter if you called him Lord, Lord a time or two. It doesn't matter if you prayed some magic prayer. I hate to break it to you, that prayer did not have magic in it. You're called to confess him and to not deny him. And this is a very sobering thing that we need to reflect on. And I want to close us out with another quote from Mr. Peter Lightheart. He says this, What can stop this kind of mission? Arrest and trial? Hardly. That expands the mission to new territory. Execution? Not even that will help. Because as Jesus says, the disciples are not to fear the ones who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. It might seem that Jesus' instructions about persecution undermine the power that he has given the twelve, but that's not true. He's still talking about power and authority. He's talking about the unstoppable power of the mission of the church, which is the mission of the crucified what Jesus is warning the disciples about here is that it's not going to be sunshines and rainbows and dandelions and unicorns when it comes to serving Christ. I know that's how we like to think of it. And we like to think that we're going to go out and everybody's just going to get saved and it's going to be amazing, but it, it wasn't that way for them. Right? The, the details he's giving them here are specific to them. But as we're going to see throughout the rest of the Bible, specifically like the new Testament, this is not how it goes. Right? There's going to be hardship. There's going to be persecution. And yes, in America, we might not face the same sort of persecution, but I also don't think we're ready for it. Because like honestly, just the little persecution that we do face, which really is barely anything, the persecution that we do face over here in America is nothing, yet we still complain about it. Right. Whenever people don't like the most recent Christian movie that comes out in theaters, we whine about it and we say that we're persecuted and we say how this is evidence that people hate Christianity. And I hate to break it to you, my brothers and sisters. That's nothing compared to what could be coming. Right. That's nothing compared to what the apostles had to go through. And so if we can't handle that slight stuff, because if I'm being entirely honest, sometimes the movies are just bad. Right. It's not even persecution. The people are just sharing honest thoughts and we get offended because we're not shrewd as serpents, and we're not innocent as doves, and we're not living as sheep amongst wolves. We are people who are literally just like we're wolves ourselves sometimes, and that's the scary thing. As Christians, we cannot allow ourselves to become wolves. We have to be sheep, right? And that means that when persecution comes, we can't complain about it. And we can't say, oh no, poor pitiful us. Right? Right now in America we have freedom of religion. Guess what? That is not a God given right. That is not something that we are entitled to. If that were taken away, we should not complain about it as Christians. We should say, glory be to God. Thank you for the time of freedom that we had. Now God, give us the strength to endure hardship. Right? And so I think that there's a lot we could learn from what he's saying here because we just have to understand the heart behind it. Yes, what he's saying is true to the apostles, but there are principles behind this that are true for all of us and we need to be willing to endure and we can't allow ourselves to be anxious about the endurance. We have to learn to fear God rather than fear man. We have to learn to trust God rather than trusting in man. We have to learn to trust God rather than trusting in ourselves. And we need to be willing to endure suffering. And we need to allow for a theology where God allows his people to suffer. That's all I have for us today. Thank you for sticking with me for this entire thing. Um, I've really been enjoying talking about the Gospel of Matthew with y'all. Um, yeah, I'll just stop right there. Thank you so much. My name is David Tate. This is Now Let's Be Honest. Be sure to keep a smile on your face. Don't let anybody steal your joy. Remember who you are. And of course, Maranatha.